Well, good morning. Welcome this morning to another installment of Tough Issues. Uh, we have decided that uh, it was uh, time and uh, to deal with some of these issues. They relate to things that are going on in our life, in our world, and so uh, we did it. We started last week with the uh, most, well, I don't say the most difficult one, but a very difficult one, the Christian and politics, and how those two intersect biblically. Now, something I said at the end of the service last week as we were rushing for time and did not do an adequate job of really being able to unpack it, created what I would call, in, from being from West Texas, a sandstorm. <laughs> Some of you might call it something else. Uh, let your mind take you where it will. But it was quite a sandstorm. And uh, I was uh, called a bully uh, in the way that I addressed that issue at the end of the service. Um, I got social media kickback. I got private kickback. I got kickback all week long. And that's okay. I'm a big boy. I can handle it. But I felt like it would be important for me to read a letter that I wrote last, or actually this morning, um, that would be important to try to help you understand a step further of what I was saying, regardless of how well I said it in the rush of the moment, to express this and why I did it the way I did. The Christian in politics, we said three things last week. We said, first of all, the scripture commands us to pray for politicians, our leaders. It talks about the king, which was, there was a king when scripture was written in uh, the first century, the Roman emperor, to pray for them. So we are to pray. That's, our, that's part of our involvement in politics as Christians that we are to pray. Whether we agree with a politician or not, we are to pray for them. He says, for all leaders. Second, we are commanded to submit to governing authorities. That's a clear command of Scripture, that Christians are not to be an insurrectionist, that we're not to take up arms against the government, that we are to live peaceable lives within that. But we also talked about the fact that the higher value of when our secular government requires us to do something that violates our Christian conscience, then we become civilly disobedient. And civil disobedience means we say to them, we must obey God. But we do it without violence, we do it without uh, rancor, but we simply say, we must obey God. Now, having said those two things, then we came to the third part, is if we are commanded to pray for leaders, this is part of what we should do. We are commanded to submit to the governing authorities as much as we can until it violates our conscience before God. Then that means the third thing, that we are free to participate in politics. And, and people say, well, how far are we free as an individual to participate in politics? And my statement simply is, as far as your conscience will allow you to. Um, for some, your conscience would allow you to do little more than pray for leaders and submit uh, to governing authorities and vote. For others, Vice President Mike Pence, a very committed believer, he's at the very upper echelons of politics and his conscience allows him to do so. So, it's an individual thing for you before God. But at the end of the, the uh, thing, I made a statement that I had, planned to, I had actually planned to make, it was not accidental but I didn't have time to flesh it out as much. So I want to read you a letter before we get into the topic for today. Um, and I will make this letter available to any of you that, that want it. At the end of the message, how many of you were not here, by the way, last I'm not asking to, okay, okay, you need to go and listen to that message so that this is in context for you, okay? This is going to be, you're going to go, wow, I don't know what happened last week, but I sure must have missed a food fight. No, the food fight didn't happen in the service, it happened afterwards. So, and it's, and it's continuing, okay? That's all right. So let me say this. At the end of the message, I address the issue of how I vote for candidates. I did that because people always ask me that question. As a pastor, pastor, how do you choose who you're going to vote for? And in this election particularly, I have been asked that question way more than I normally would. In fact, I have been asked the question, how can you vote for that person? So it's not only that, but the question is coming, how do you vote? And here's what I said. This is what I've always said. It's what I said last Sunday. I vote based upon a hierarchy of values. I, I hold personal values that I prefer as an American citizen. 
things that every American citizen has. We all have, as citizens, we are citizens of this country, and we are citizens of the kingdom of God. We have a dual citizenship. And sometimes we have personal values that we hold uh, as an American system, system, uh, citizen, and we get to determine those for ourselves individually. But I also hold biblical values that I have as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I don't get to determine those. God's word determines those for me. And these two, my personal values for what, as a citizen of this country, and God's biblical moral values are constantly in conflict. Constantly. For all of us. And the reason for that is because as a Christ follower, I am voting for a secular leader of a secular state. We talked about that last week. America is not Israel. We are not the chosen of God. And God does not appoint prophets and kings to America as he did Israel. We are a secular nation founded as a secular nation on Judeo-Christian values, but not as a religious nation, as the nation the founders fled from, which it was. They wrote specifically the exclusion clause in the Constitution so that government would not establish religion of any kind. So it is a secular leader of a secular state. So here I am. I have citizenship in two realms. The temporal realm, which is, as an American citizen, and the internal realm as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And these two are in conflict. Therefore, because I vote on a basis of a hierarchy of values, I look at where the candidate stands on both sides, what I prefer as an American citizen, that has nothing to do with my Christianity, has nothing to do with biblical commands, just what I prefer as a citizen of this nation. I look where they stand there and what I believe God speaks in his word. These two together. And it has always been my position as a Christ follower, as a pastor, and as a Bible teacher, and I've never been bashful about saying this, that the highest moral value in God's word is the sanctity of life. It is the protection of innocent life. And that is an emphasis in the Old Testament. Derek and I were just speaking about that. That the protection of innocent life. All of my personal feelings, all of my personal wants, all of my personal desires have to be subjugated to that highest value of what Scripture reveals. Otherwise, if I voted in another way, I would be elevating personal value, things I want to see as an American citizen, over what I say I believe is God's highest value. I would be voting for something that I personally would like to see happen over what I proclaim that I believe is God's revealed will. Do you see this conflict? We all face it. To me, God's word has revealed that his highest moral value is the protection of innocent life. So if I did that, I would be putting my personal desires, if I voted for what I personally would like to see in America, for what I want as an American citizen, over what I say I believe is God's desire as a creator of heaven and earth, and I simply will not do that. So I have had to become a one-issue voter. There was a time in my life when that was not true. I have voted for both parties, quite frankly. But there was a time in my life when the sides were not as clearly cut as they are now. And I simply will not do it. Before God, I will not do it. That is my position. If I say that I believe the sanctity of life is a supreme value revealed in God's word, but then vote for a candidate who would work for the unfettered slaughter of the unborn, I believe that would be hypocritical, contradictory, 
and a distortion of my values. As a church body, we have not been bashful or silent about this issue. For the 37 years that we've been in existence, as a church body, we have taken a position of being for the sanctity of life. We support the Women's Choice Resource Center, a Christian pro-life clinic right here on the east side of Fort Worth, who not only counsels women to give their unborn child life, but when they do so, then helps them with what they need when that child is born. I personally support them financially. We support them financially as a church. I was their keynote speaker at their virtual fundraiser this year. Derek was the MC of the banquet that we were able to have last year. We have been intimately involved with this fight for life. So for me to do all of those things and then vote for a candidate who wants to not only continue to abort one million unborn children, innocent lives per year in America, but even to expand that further would be unthinkable and hypocritical. For me to tell you anything but that conviction as the pastor of this church, not the only pastor, but the lead pastor at this time, for me to tell you anything but that conviction would be cowardly on my part and would be an abdication of my calling and my responsibility as a pastor and as a prophet. So I said at the end of the message, if you have figured out a way to hold the conviction of the sanctity of life and then vote for a candidate who wants to continue the destruction of unborn life because that candidate promotes some other things that you value, then go ahead. You understand what I'm saying? That candidate provokes some values that you value, but they also deny the supreme value of the sanctity of life, and you figured out a way to live with that contradiction, then go ahead. You will answer to God for it, not to me. As I will answer to God for my decision. I do not see how a Christ follower can do that. I just don't. And we will each have to answer to God for it. For 37 years, 37 years ago, as this church was just beginning, they called me to be the pastor. They knew my gifting was in prophetic teaching. There was no secret about that. That's what they were looking for. I teach and I lead with that prophetic gifting. And I have fulfilled that calling for 37 years to the best of my ability. Not perfectly, but to the best of my human ability. Over those years, people have told me that they loved that I spoke with such clarity and unapologetically what my conviction of God's Word is. That is always until I do it in an area with which they disagree with. So they have come, and they have gone. This morning, I got a letter from a young family taking strong exception to what I said at the end of the message last Sunday, removing themselves from service, and I assume from this church. I do not know. I was accused this week on social media of bullying in what I said last week, of telling people how to vote. I was telling you how to vote. I was telling you how I vote, and I was telling you why I do it that way, and why I, my conviction, my prophetic conviction, absolutely, I'm not going to say it apologetically, is it is a contradiction for a Christ follower to vote any other way. Whoever the candidate is, Whatever the year is, whatever the election is, has nothing to do with it. What they interpreted as bullying is the expression of my deeply held biblical moral conviction as a pastor, prophet, teacher. If you choose to disagree and decide how you vote in another way, that is your decision. I said that. I'll say it again. I, as you, will stand before my Jesus someday and give him an answer for that decision. That created a storm. I will go on and say, there was a time in this nation when pastors were the political leaders of this nation. Because this nation sought spiritual leadership even in the political arena. Pastors went to Washington, D.C. They were elected as congressmen and senators. 
They spoke in their community, and their community listened because the community always looked to the pastors for spiritual leadership. That is no longer true today. In fact, we are marginalized. We are silenced, not only by our community, but sometimes by our own church members and told to keep our mouth shut about these issues. And I'm not announcing to you folks, I've never been bashful about this, and I'm not going to start today. I will not do that. On this issue alone, you will never hear me speak about economics, that you must vote this way. That is your decision. But when it comes to the bedrock biblical conviction of the sanctity of life before God and before you, I will speak, and I will speak unapologetically. And many of you have supported me this week, and I want to say to you, your support does not encourage me to do it more. It never has, for I never did it for your support, nor does your criticism call me to question to stop doing it. I would have quit a long time ago if that were the case. And it is ironic to me, in one century's time, we have gone when, when the pastors of churches were the spiritual voice for the community and for the nation, and now we are told by our own church members to shut up. We've come a long way, baby. And what you're hearing in my voice is not anger. It is prophetic indignation. And I will not apologize to one of you for it. I have to answer to God, as you do. And you will. And I will. And I'm fine with where I am. And let me say to you as well, um, the way I lead and teach has been... um, ultimately influenced by James. Uh, I came to this church, gosh, 13, almost 14 years ago, and uh, I was saved. As an unbeliever. I I was an unbeliever. I was saved in this church, and I have learned how to do ministry. I've discovered my own spiritual gifting here in this church. Uh, I do not teach primarily with a prophetic gifting. And I wouldn't want him to. No. It would be be too much for you to handle. (laughs) He has learned a great deal from me, and I have learned a great deal from him. This has been a very healthy relationship for me, as I believe it has been for him. Absolutely. And so you will hear me say things And I do not expect every preacher to speak prophetically, as no. I do. That is my gifting and is my calling, and I can do no less. Right, right. I have my own set of gifting that I lead from. You'll hear me say a lot of things perhaps differently. Uh, you will hear me be vocal about certain things that James is not. You will hear me not be vocal about things that James is. Um, but I want to communicate to those of you, because I had a lot of, not a lot of, but a couple questions last week about where, what I think. And I am unified with James. Um, I would not sit up here and um, continue this discussion if I was diametrically opposed to him. You will hear me criticize a lot of conservatives, a lot of conservative thought, and people have mistaken me as not a conservative. I'm more conservative probably than you are because I value the Bible, and I study it a lot, and it informs those decisions. But I'm also critical of the people who represent me, because a lot of the times they're not conservative nor biblical. And so I feel like it's an important thing for me to speak on those things. But I want to say to you that James and I lead through a lot of disagreements between us, and that's good. I think that's healthy as well. But we are very unified here. And so, uh, if, you, if you have issues with that, then let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. And if you have issues with this, talk to him about it. As it should be done. Yeah. When people come to me with have issues with him, I say, you speak to him. Don't speak to me. Yeah. He and I are joined at the hip. We Unfortunately. are sounding a clarion call, which is God's biblical truth, and I will not allow you to dump trash in my ears about this young man. I just won't do it. So if you have a problem, you go to him. Don't come to me. Amen. And, and he does the very same thing. Um, we are, I think, as a nation, but as the church in America, we are at a crossroads from which there is no coming back. We are at a crossroads. And I have 66 years of life of studying law, having studied it as a student and studied it as a just interested in it, studying politics, studying the issues, 
I have 66 years of looking at the downward slope that the church has gone on as our culture has gone on that downward slope. And that says to me that the culture is infecting the church more than the church is infecting our culture. And that's a tragic trend because it has taken us to the, where we are today. And if that trend continues, I have to extrapolate out and say, where is the next bottom that we will come to? And I can see it. Because when Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973, my sophomore year in college, before I went to law school, they believed that it would only happen, abortion would only happen in very rare situations. And we have gone down that slippery slope to where over a million unborn babies and more black babies were aborted in New York City last year than babies that were actually born to African Americans. This is eugenics. It's what Planned Parenthood was founded upon. It is where our culture is going. Where Down syndrome babies, 67% of the time in America, are aborted because through amniocentesis, the Down's chromosome has been identified. That will be 100% one of these days. We will come to a place as a nation, I'm sorry, I've gone off script here. We will be at a place in a nation in the life of my children, who are 35 and 38, if this trend continues where we will have children that are born with defects that were not detected with amniocentesis and by the law of the land can be legally put to death. That's where we're going. If we went from, in 73, it was going to be a rare occurrence to aborting over a million babies a year, where is the next place to go from there? If this moral decline is not stopped, we will go to where people will say to their dad, dad, Sorry, you've lived long enough. It's time to go home. You have nothing to produce anymore. You are a drain on society. It's time for them to put the needle in your arm and put you to death. That is where we are going. As a nation and as a church. And as the nation has moved that direction, we have seen the same trend happen in the church. That says the church in America is not changing our culture. The culture is changing the church. I can't do anything but about my world, and my world is right here. And there will be people, when I die, I said this in the first service, who will come to my grave and will mourn, and there will be people who will walk by and pee in <laughs> my grave. So be it. I knew that when I took this job. But I will answer to Jesus, mm -hmm. and only him, as you will. As any of you will. As any of us will. So. Well, now that we're good and depressed, let's talk about depression. <laughs> let's do it. Let's jump in. If you have questions, I, I'm welcome them, okay? Privately, to me. People have my cell phone. They have my email. They have my Facebook. They have my messenger. There's so many ways you can get hold of me. I wish I could run. <laughs> okay, so now we're dealing with it question of depression. And we will right. go a little over time. I'm sorry, we only have 20 minutes by our 1045 let out time. If you'll give us 10 extra minutes, we'll be able to get it done. I That's believe. Right. Yep. Okay. In 2018, there were 48,344 confirmed suicides in America. Men are 3.4 times more likely to commit suicide than women. Since COVID, we are going to someday date American life and church life, BC, before COVID. Churches are already saying, well, before COVID... We were a church, and now we were we're not. Before COVID, we paid our bills. Yeah. Before COVID, we were able to do ministry. Not so much anymore. As America is going to date BC before COVID. It has affected us all. Since COVID, the National Alliance on Mental Health Helpline reported that they've seen 65% increase in calls and emails since March of 2020, which is COVID. 65% of mental health helpline calls about suicide. CDC Director Robert Redfield also come, commented in July of 2020, very recently, on the spike in the suicide rate in America. He says there's been another cost to the virus that we've seen, particularly in high schools. We are seeing, sadly, 
far greater suicides now than we are seeing deaths from the COVID virus. Just since March, we are seeing far greater deaths from drug overdose as well. You know, the irony of that is that one of the like celebrated stats of COVID is that it hasn't affected kids that much. It's a lie. Maybe the virus itself hasn't, right. but the effects of it certainly But they are have. putting themselves to death at rates we've never seen in the history of this country. So are they COVID cases? Yes, they are. Director of the doctors at Cook's Children's Medical Center here in Austin, where my daughter is a pediatric trauma nurse practitioner, said... Attempted suicides have been at a rate that have been admitted just to that one hospital at a rate of about one per day in the month of August. So my daughter, as a trauma nurse practitioner, is called to the, to the ER when one of those cases comes in and she's on duty to treat that as a trauma, depending on the level, if it reaches trauma level. So this is what she has her hands in every day. They totaled 29 children for the month that were admitted just to Cook Children's, one children's hospital in one community, attempted suicide. 2020 so far has been 192 pediatric attempts at suicide, which is double the rate of just five years ago, COVID-related. Dr. Kia Carter, medical director of psychiatry at Cook Children's, says we see kids every day telling us they're struggling. They wish they can go back to their normal lives. The delayed return to school and return to normal life for children is leaving some of them with a sense of hopelessness. They don't understand why they can't be with their friends. The vast majority of patients who attempt suicide that are admitted to Cook Children's is girls from the age of 13 to 15. That's by their own reports. My daughter can confirm that. Girls 8, 13 to 15 is the vast majority of these patients in our community of kids going to that one hospital who have attempted to take their lives. This week, my medical doctor has been practiced for 25 years. She said, I have never in 25 years of my medical practice seen as many patients come into my clinic in utter and complete despair. The greatest cause is depression. So we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that issue because underneath this is depression. It is the precipitating cause 99.9% .9 of the time of this issue that is at epidemic proportion since March in our nation and is growing increasingly, which is suicide. I want to give you four statements this morning. Derek's going to bounce off of some of those. We're going to try to, under, we're going to, try to unpack this. And we're going to do this for two reasons. For two people, there are people in the room who are practitioners of depression, and I said to the first service, I've never been bashful about this, I am a practitioner of depression. So from the time I was a little boy, I can remember it. I didn't know what to call it. I've struggled with it my entire life. So this has been an issue that I've, I've looked at biblically, I've looked at it medically, I've looked at it physically. I have, and then as a pastor, I'm called upon to minister to people who are experiencing depression. I mean, I have been surrounded by depression my entire life. This is a subject that is very personal to me, as I know that it is for many of you. And so I want to, you to understand that, that I'm coming here not from a clinical perspective, I'm coming here from a practitioner's perspective, not only as a quote-unquote Bible teacher, Bible scholar, but also as a practitioner of this devastation. And let me say to you too, just before we, because we are going to spend most of our time on depression, but, but I do want to say on the topic of suicide something I think it's important. I've, I've conducted funerals for individuals, Christ followers who have uh, committed suicide. I know James has as well. Um, and, and overwhelmingly, the biggest question we get from families is, um, will he or she go to heaven or hell? And it is typically a question that is motivated by a, a understanding that I believe is very perpetuated by uh, movies and television that suicide is somehow the unforgivable mortal sin, that, that there's no coming back from spiritually speaking. Um, it is true that the Bible talks about an unforgivable sin, but it's not suicide. It's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so um, there, there's Which, not a... That's for another day. Another day. Unpack yeah. that one. Um, there, there is not an asterisk 
next to the gospel that says, unless committed suicide. So if you are covered by the blood of Jesus, if you are born again in Christ, then you are forgiven past, present, and future sins. And suicide is not an exception to that rule. It's perpetuated by a a Catholic teaching that was formalized in um, 1885 under the Baltimore Catechism. Um, It reads this way. This is actual Catholic dogma. Persons who willfully and knowingly commit such an act die in a state of mortal sin and are deprived of Christian burial. Um, This is the teaching of the Baltimore Catechism adopted by the Catholic Church in 1885 up to, I would say, about the 1960s when they started doing uh, some, some, putting in some loopholes to try to get around that teaching. Uh, It's popularized in movies, it's popularized in television shows, and so I wanted to clear the air for many of you because I know many of you have this question. Um, Is it a mortal sin? Is it an unforgivable sin? It is not. It is not. Uh, what and, determines? And to be, be clear, that was only decided by the Catholic Church. Yes. In the mid 1800s, as he talked about 1885, that was the Catholic Church. That was dogma from the Pope became Catholic dogma, dogma. Catholic law. Yes. That can never be revoked. It was stated by a pre uh, by a Pope. It has become Catholic law. It has no basis in Scripture. Therefore, but because when Hollywood makes a movie or a TV show, they base it upon Catholicism, typically, and so you get this message constantly coming across, is suicide the unforgivable sin? It is based upon that right there. It's not based upon Scripture. That's right. So that's it. Just wanted to clear the air for you. Go ahead. We're ready. Let's do it. Okay, we have to do this quickly. Four points about depression. And I said, I I say this for two, two groups of people. There's a group of people here who, like myself, are practitioners of depression. I want you to hear these points. I want you to understand them. But also, for those of you who are not practitioners of depression, you need to hear these as well so that you know how to respond to those of us who deal with it. So we, there's something for all of us here we need to understand. First of all, that depression is an isolator. Anyone who's ever experienced depression knows that to be true. What depression does is it makes us feel alone and then it makes us want to be alone. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Depression makes me want to withdraw or makes me feel withdrawn and then it makes me want to withdraw. Over and over in Scripture, we have the, we have the picture of the prophets in the Old Testament who got depressed and isolated. I mean, just over and over and over, it seems like they get depressed and then they isolate. And anyone who's struggled with depression understands that desire. Moses, Numbers chapter 11, God was giving his, his uh, manna in the wilderness to them. They were happy and then they got tired of the same old diet and they began to gripe. And it obviously drove Moses into what would today be called depression. Verse 14 of Numbers 11, he went to God and he said, I alone am not able to bear these people because it is too burdensome. So if you're going to deal this way with me, please kill me at once. He asked God to take his life. He said, I I can't handle this anymore. It is over my head. If this is what you're going to call me to do, then take my life. I think by any stretch of the imagination, we would call that depression by today's standards. He wasn't alone, but he felt alone. He never was alone, but he felt alone in that moment. And so God, in answer to that prayer... He said, call 70 elders together and I will give them my spirit as I have given you my spirit and I will now speak not only to you, I will speak to them as well so that you know you're not alone. You see, God answered that isolation question to him. Elijah, 1 Kings 19.4, chased by Jezebel. Right, this was after, shortly after his great victory on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And then this woman is chasing him. He ran into isolation. He says to God, he sat down under a juniper tree and requested that he might die. It is enough, O Lord, take my life. I think I call that depression. Jonah chapter 4, after Nineveh had repented, which is the reason he ran from God, because he didn't want to go to Nineveh and give them the opportunity to repent. Well, they did it anyway, and it depressed Jonah. And he said, O Lord, take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. David in Psalm 142, verse 3 through 4, refers to what it was like for him when he was depressed. And he says, When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. 
In the way where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see, for there is no one who regards me. There is no escape for me. No one cares for my soul. This is David, the king of Israel. A man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. God's anointed one. No one cares for my soul. He was depressed. We see many times in David's life when he was struggling with depression for different reasons at different times. So, first of all, it is an isolator. Second of all, depression is a liar. You need to understand, in other words, okay, you who are prone to depression, you need to understand what's going to happen so that you can be aware of it. But those who are not prone to it need to understand that this is a desire that is deeply woven into depression. So, what is the answer? What do we do? Yeah. As people. So, the... uh... The solution to the isolation question is, first of all, um, Christian community. And I say Christian community uh, very intentionally, and we're going to talk about why on this last point, but uh, Galatians 6.2 tells us to bear one another's burdens, including depression, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So we are to live in such a way as members of the body of Christ where when we identify those who struggle with anything, including depression, that we do not allow them to go at it alone, but that we come alongside them and we say, hey, let me bear that for you. And we're going to talk about how, like I said in a moment, let me, let me carry that for you. Let me help you. Let me walk with you through this. It doesn't mean, you know, cheer them up. You know, whenever, whenever James mentioned he's a, a practitioner of depression, and, and I can always tell as someone who works very close with him. Put a smile um, on. Yeah, James, why are you down, bud? Let me put on a fun song. Let's dance. You know, I, that's not. Let's go play ball. That's not helpful. That actually is worse. That will make the person more depressed. But to bear their burdens in such a way to not allow them to isolate. Where you're not putting them on a performance basis. Yes, yes. To allow them to feel what they're feeling, but to not let them feel it alone. Not let them feel alone or be alone. That's the one another. That's coming alongside of one another. I'm trying to fix the person. Let me give you a truth, because this is an important truth you need to hear. You will not let someone bear your burdens in an unsafe environment. You will not let it happen. You will not unveil the hurt, the anxiety, the fear, the sin sometimes. We're going to talk about the different version, the different the, the dimensions of depression. You will not unveil these things to people if you feel you are at risk of being condemned, shamed, or guilted because of it. And I said this in the first service, and I think it is true. We are considered to be a church that is safe for hurting people. We, we deal with recovering addicts. We deal with uh, uh, men who are struggling with uh, sexual purity, pornography. We help them walk in sobriety. We've just done the Fearless Series for Women, women who have been uh, the victims of sexual abuse. We minister in that area. We have a post-abortion group going right now. It's interesting. We're talking about abortion. We have a group for women who have had abortions and are struggling with the emotional pain of that to help them to experience emotional healing. So we're working on both ends of this thing, but it's easy for a church to say, well, it's not easy to become a safe place like that. We've worked for a long time to to make it that, but it's possible for a church to be a safe place for that, but not be a safe place for depression. Yes. And we'll talk about why here in a moment. We have to recognize as a church body that we must not only be a safe place for people to speak honestly about those issues, we have to become a safe, we have to be a safe place for someone who's struggling with depression to be able to speak about it without condemnation, without the old slap on the back, come on, just give one for Jesus kind of attitude, but where we can really walk through that with them. And let me say to you, because um, I, I know there are, since COVID, there, we've had a lot of guests come in, which praise God, welcome, we're glad you're here. Those of you online who are guests with us as well, this is the first part of our vision statement at City on Hill, making church a safe place for people to let go of their secrets, secrets. and then providing a safe process for them to grow in emotional and spiritual uh, maturity in Christ. Christ. So this is, this is part of, the again, the philosophy, the vision behind who we believe God calls us to be as a church, to be a safe place where you feel comfortable sitting down with someone and saying, I don't want to live anymore. And for you to not feel guilted or shame, but say, brother or sister, you are loved, 
You're valued. Let me help you with that. Let me walk through that with you. And we will close this discussion out in a moment uh, with an, uh, under, help you understand why so often churches are not safe for people to deal with depression. Yeah. It can be safe to deal with a lot of things, but depression is that off-the-charts issue. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, I, until we get to that point, I won't say anymore, okay, just okay. For in, in the honor of time. Okay, okay. Second of all, not only is depression an isolator, but depression is a liar. Depression, what depression does is it twists the truth into something that is unrecognizable. A depressed person, and I speak from personal experience here, but also from pastoring for 40 years and dealing with depressed people, are unable most often to recognize the truth of what is actually going on. Because depression twists the truth into something that is unrecognizable. Uh, A few years ago, uh, Isaac Hunter, a pastor of a large megachurch, very well-known church in Orlando, Florida, took his own life. Uh, We have had a plague of that happen over the last year. It has happened enormous numbers during the COVID issue with pastors taking their own life. That's one of those secrets that culture's not talking about a great deal because pastors look at the church they poured their heart and their soul into it and they watch it destroyed by the virus. And pastors oftentimes are not able to handle that kind of thing. They don't have anybody to go to, and they take their own life because my life is a failure. Now, here is what he said in a note. He said, I have become what I never wished to be, a burden on those I love the most. I've heard that from people who committed suicide in 40 years of ministry. I've done so many uh, funerals for suicide people. I've heard family members who this note was left for them, and, and, and... And I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, this mindset, because this is what depression does to you. It's a liar. It lies to you. And in that depressed state, the person is not really able to see it as what it really is as a lie. And, And often the lie is everyone would be better off without me. The church would be better off without me. I'll just kill myself. My family would be better off without me. I will take my life. This is the resounding note that the depressed mind will ultimately come to. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah uh, is depressed. There's no doubt about it. And he starts spouting off all these things. Uh, He says, Lord, I've been zealous for you. That was a true statement. He says, the Israelites have rejected you. For the most part, they had. That was a true statement. He said, they've killed the prophets. And for the most part, they've done that. And then he said, I'm the only one left. And that was a lie. He wasn't the only one left. You see, the lie gets so mixed in with the truth in the depressed condition that the depressed person cannot separate the truth from the lie. Are you getting this? Does this matter? Come on, y'all. You go, man, I don't know. This is too much to chew. Well, it's a lot to chew. It does. Depression is an isolator. Depression is a liar. Third, and this one feeds off of the one I just said, depression distorts reality. And we have to understand that as people who deal with depression, that what we are seeing as reality is not reality. And if you have a loved one that deals with it, you need to understand that you see reality clearly, but that person you love and care for does not see reality. It is distorted in their mind. It distorts reality. And here's how it does it. It says the past in my life has no meaning. I'm a failure. It says the present has no joy. Nothing brings relief. The depressed person will say the things that I I do for enjoyment, I don't even want to do anymore. There was a period of time, I read voraciously. I read probably 150 books a year. There was a period of time in my life for nine months, I did not read a single book. Reading is recreation to me. It's not only for intellect, it is also just for my soul. It's, it's, it's an opportunity to decompress. But during that, I don't even want to read a word. It distorts that reality. So the past has no meaning. I'm a failure. I've said that to my wife so many times in a depressed state. And she never, you know, all she just simply says is, James, let's talk about that. And, and she's just like, no, no, look at your life, look at your life. But to me, my life is a failure. To me, there's no, there's no joy. There's nothing I can do that can bring joy. And third, the future has no hope. This, this is what the reality of the depressed mind looks like. 
The past has no meaning. It's a failure. The present has no joy. There's nothing to do. The future has no hope. Depression causes you to see the next chapter of your life story as, a, as containing nothing other than unbearable pain. That's why in the depressed state, often people take their own life. For they see nothing in the future but unbearable pain, and they can't bear it. And they take their life. Summation then. Depression steals reality. It replaces it with a world where one doubts his or own, her own abilities, discounts to zero his or her own past successes, and feels no hope for tomorrow. So depression is an isolator, it's a liar, it's a reality distorter, and the last one, depression, is multidimensional. Now what I mean by that is that depression can come from many sources, and we need to understand the source. That's right. This is the diagnosis part of the message. When someone is depressed, it can come from many different causes, so the depressed person needs to understand that, but also the people that have to minister and love and care for that depressed person to understand that there's not one size that fits all, that depression can come from, I'm going to give you four main sources. First of all, there is seasonal depression. In other words, there, there, that time in the season changes when you just feel down. Derek has talked about the fact that that's something that, that he kind of deals with. It's not clinical depression. It's a lowness. It's just a, you know, it, how many of you have struggled with seasonal depression in any way? So that's why the suicide rate in the northwest part of our country is higher than it is anywhere else in the nation because there's so little sunshine for so much of the year. Yep. And, and so it, that seasonal thing, they can't handle it. I couldn't live there. I couldn't live there. Uh, I, gotta be, I gotta have my sunlight. And I, I can't live in that. And, and e but even the season changes. I do struggle some with seasonal depression. Not bad, but just a little bit of a, for a week or so. I can feel it. Situational. Sometimes it's not about seasonal, it's about situation. It's a temporary circumstance that has taken place in your life, such as a loss, uh, loss of a loved one, loss of uh, uh, reputation, uh, loss of uh, a job. I mean, loss, just some temporary situation, a particular relationship struggle or a health struggle mm -hmm. can result in situational depression. It's not anything that maybe you've dealt with before, but all of a sudden in this situation, I'm depressed and I don't know why. Okay? And so it needs a situational prescription. Third, sometimes, and this is the one the church has been really bad about, sometimes it can be spiritual. And that is true. David, for the period of time after Bathsheba, before Nathan came to him and convicted him, he repented. David writes later of what his life was like during that period of time, and it was not a pretty picture. He said, my bones were drying up. And he, why? It was, the, the, the guilt was coming upon him, and he was so depressed. I can imagine David probably lost weight. He didn't eat. He didn't function well, because that's what would happen. And sometimes our depression can come from a spiritual source. Unresolved guilt, something in one's life that has, needs to be resolved so that can lift, and the depression will lift with it. But, but see, we've, we've talked about three sources, and one of the problems with the Christian community in the past is that we've skipped the first two and just gone right to the spiritual. There must be some sin. There must be something spiritual wrong, or you yeah. wouldn't be depressed, because we're supposed to be happy in Jesus. Yeah. We're supposed to rejoice in Jesus. Okay? The scripture never says we're supposed to be happy in Jesus, but we are to rejoice in Jesus. When you're depressed, it's real hard to do that. Okay, and so if you're not, then there must be some spiritual problem with you, and so we need to pray over you and cast the demon out of you, or we, you need to get before God and you need to confess your, your sin so this depression can lift. I cannot tell you. <laughs> In my mid-30s, when I wanted to take my life, I, because that was the message that I inherited when I came into Christ at the age of 18, kid right off the streets, 1972, the message of the church then was if... Your ailment is from the shoulder up, it's a spiritual problem. If it's from the shoulders down, it's okay to seek medical intervention and medical help. In other words, if, it is a, if it's this mysterious thing of the brain, it's got to be a spiritual issue. And so many Christ followers probably took their own lives during that period of time because they said, I've prayed. I, I can remember I prayed for hours on end. I confessed sins that I had never even thought about committing to get relief. And it never came. 
because my issue was not a spiritual issue. And so to prescribe a spiritual remedy for what is not a spiritual problem, you're not going to get results. All you're going to do is become an unsafe place That's right. for Christians to talk about depression because they know darn good and well what they're going to hear is, well, well, let's pray for you and cast the demon out. Or you just need to confess your sin before God. You know, let me, let me say something real fast. I didn't say this first service, but I think this is, I've said this in, in other venues and, and conversations. Um, Growing up as a, as a child, I, I had a very difficult upbringing, and, and I struggled with this a lot, depression, anger, um, and I turned to music. Music was my outlet. I, it's how I became a musician. I listened to a lot of music that you do not hear in churches today, um, and, and I think it's interesting to me. It's something that I've, I've thought about writing on, and, and I don't know, maybe, maybe someday I will, uh, the idea that... The church has historically uh, shunned these heavier groups from particularly the 90s into the early 2000s, when the reality is so many kids like myself went to those forms, those outlets for our pain and anger because the church offered nothing for it. I remember an interview I listened to with... uh, uh, Marilyn Manson. Some of you may remember him. He was like the threat to American values before 9-11. Um, and then everything after that, you know, became terror. But he was like the great fear. And I remember right after the, um, the Columbine shootings, he was blamed heavily for that, which is ironic because they, they never listened to him according to their, their writings. But someone asked him, what would you say to the shooters at Columbine today if you had a chance to talk with them. And his response was, I wouldn't say anything. I would listen like apparently no one else was willing to. Now listen. That's Marilyn Manson saying that? When when the church historically has not been willing to say that? When Marilyn Manson is getting this right and the church is getting it wrong. Something's wrong. We have a problem. Yeah. We have a problem. We're not a safe place. That, That is such an indictment upon the church in America. And this is how a church like ours can be a safe place for all of these issues, but not be a safe place for depression if we do not see through that lie. If we do not understand that all depression is not spiritual. That's right. It can come from a multiplicity of sources. It can come from uh, seasonal, situational. Yes, it can be spiritual. And then the fourth one is what I call it senseless. And that means you can't point to anything. When someone will come to me who is expressing depression, I do not go to the to the third one. I go to the first two first. I go seasonal. Well, you know, is this something you deal with on an annual basis? Is, you look at your calendar kind of thing. Does this happen to you periodically? And they go, well, yeah, it does. I go, well, it's probably seasonal. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's push through that one. Okay. And if it's not, then I'll go, okay, well, is it situational? Is there something going on in your life right now that is particularly distressful, that is particularly, have you had great loss or or whatever, and they go, well, you know, really, there has been a lot of stress at work, and, and my husband has not been, uh, you know, has been abusing me, or whatever, you know, and, and I go, well, let, this is probably situational. Let's press through that. Let's, let's go to that, and if there's nothing there, then I'll ask, well, is there something spiritual going on in your life? Is there something that you feel extreme guilt or shame over that, that you've not been able to get out from under, and, and if there is, then I said, well, then let's address that. Let's go there, and if still the depression is there, I will eventually go to the fourth one. And by senseless, what I mean is it probably has a physical cause. Mm-hmm. Because you can't see a seasonal issue. You can't see a situational issue. It's not a spiritual issue. It is probably a physical cause that is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Now, I'm going to skip over some stuff here right quick. And I'm going to get to very quickly here uh, so we can, can deal with this. And this is where we failed as a Christian community in times past. Not as much today because we are becoming much more aware of, of the biochemical issues in the brain, of serotonin, the neural pathways, and all of those things that the church 25, 30 years ago didn't, didn't really have much grasp on them because science didn't have a grasp on them. But now we can understand why sometimes this happens with no outer uh, cause because it's an inner cause. Now understand this. The brain is an organ of the body just as the heart is, just as the thyroid is, as the lungs are, as the liver is. And because our bodies are no longer perfect, since the fall, God created us in perfection. 
There were no heart issues, there were no lung issues, there were no liver issues. But when sin came in, the body became less than perfect. So some of us struggle with physical issues of the heart. A heart valve problem, uh, a thyroid that is not productive, uh, uh, a kidney function that is not uh, enough to sustain life, and all of those kinds of things. And, and what, we, what do we do? Well, we go, well, I don't know why my body was born with a, a heart valve and problem and somebody else's wasn't, but it's a physical deal and I need to go to a cardiologist. You're darn sure right. Yeah. If your thyroid is underproductive and it causes all the issues that that happens, causes, then go to a doctor and get medication for it. My best friend growing up took thyroid medication every day from the time we were in elementary school because he was going to be this tall if he didn't. And his, his doctor knew that. And he's taken, he still takes thyroid medication and he's 66 years old like I am. It's a lifelong issue. His thyroid will never function perfectly. So he has medical intervention for that problem. But there's this mindset and this idea that we don't, we fail to understand that the brain is an organ of the body just as the heart is, just as the thyroid is, just as all the organs. And for some of us, we have brain damage. We have a brain that has been affected by the fall and does not produce enough serotonin or it cannot retain the serotonin long enough for it to do its mood leveling God-given creative purpose or those kinds of issues. And so thank God that there is technology, medical technology today, that can, through experimentation, can, can fix that. I've been on medication for about 10 years. I'm 66 years old. So I was in my mid-50s before I would ever submit to that because I had to get rid of that lie that was put in my head when I was 18 years old, when I came to Christ right off the streets, that everything from the neck down, it's okay to go to a doctor, but James, if you're depressed, it's got to be a spiritual issue. And so I wouldn't let go of that. And so I would pray, and I would fight, and I would pray, and I continued to be depressed, and I would think about suicide, and then I would get better for a short period of time, and, and then it would go again, and it would go again, and it would go again, and it was only in my mid-50s that I was willing, ultimately, to go on medication. And I thank God because my brain responds to that medication. I do wonderful. I don't get high. I, don't, I just feel normal. In fact, when it first began to kick into me 10 years ago, I said to my wife, I said, is this what normal people feel like? I'd never felt normal. I didn't know what it felt. I did everything I'd ever done in my life. All my schooling, going through that, pastoring a church, counseling depressed people when I was more depressed than they were with this cloud over me. And, and, and wow. And my doctor, who's a loving Christian and, and a very good doctor, explained to me the mechanics of the brain and the, of the neural pathways and the, the chemistry of the brain that we now understand that even 25 years ago we've had very small insight into. And she said, James, your issue has never been a spiritual issue. It is a physical issue. And thank God, thank Jesus, that we can fix it. And I'm thankful that it works for me. I know some Christians, it's very difficult. They still have a difficult time with it. But, so, it's okay. See, depression, folks, is a mental illness. It is the number one mental illness in America. It is listed in the, whatever that book is. I know there's somebody over there that, that knows that, that DRSV, whatever. Aren't you in the medical world back there? Nope. Okay. I got the wrong person. Somebody. <laughs> She's going, hope he's not talking to me. Anyway, as, as a part of mental illness, just as a heart valve in the, car, in, the, in the heart is a part of defection of the heart. It is a defection of the brain. And it's okay to seek help for it. Physically, I've done great, except when I've taken myself off the medication, and that's not been a pretty picture. Many of you have walked through that with me over the years, the couple of times that I went back to that old line and said, no, I don't need this stuff. I can pray my way through this. It didn't look good. It didn't look good. Um, I started taking blood pressure medication a month ago and immediately went into depression. Immediately. And it just started getting deeper and deeper and deeper. And I finally consulted with my doctor. She just quit taking it. There are plenty of these medications that we can do that do not have that side effect. That particular one has that side effect. The day I stopped taking it, the depression lifted. 
So what it was doing, it was creating an imbalance in my brain that the medication for the serotonin production was, was fixing. Then this came along and it was defeating that and I was moving into depression. Why? It was a physical cause, a medication issue. So what I'm saying to you and what we're trying to say to you this morning, dear people of God, is don't be afraid to be honest about depression. Don't be afraid to walk through the, the diagnosis part of that. And, and don't be afraid to walk through it with one another. And we're not afraid to walk through it with you. Uh, but don't immediately just go, there, my, my life is a failure. There's no joy for the present and there's no hope for the future. So I just might as well give up. Well, let me say too that, that the, the, what he just laid out, the four dimensions of depression, are, there are two extremes, and, and, and we are seeking to avoid either of them. The one extreme that he just talked about, which is just make everything spiritual, is not helpful because, again, it's not addressing the core issue. On the other side of that, in the secular world, the other extreme is we just need to medicate you. Yeah. Rather than finding out if there's something seasonal or situational or spiritual at play, you have all the signs of depression, so take this pill every day and it'll make you feel better. Our culture starts with four. Yeah. We, need, we start with one Yes. as pastors. Yes. I will always start with one. I will never start with four. I will diagnose through those three. Our culture says if you're having a problem, just take a medication. Take, take a pill. And, and here's, the, here's the reality. This is a truth that I want you to understand. The church can never be a safe place if it ignores the multiple dimensions of depression. Because we will, with a wrong diagnosis, almost certainly always mistreat it. And, and, and so it's not helpful. L let me say, too, and I, I didn't mention this because in, in just honor of time. If anybody um, needs to rescue the workers from your children or yeah, the building. Then you are free, for sure. Rescue Don't, the children, rescue the workers from your children. Rescue the workers from the children. Feel free to get up. We'll but but let me say, too, that apart from or in addition to the community of faith that is to help you because depression is an isolator, that community of faith is always to walk in the truth of God's word. You know, James talked a lot about how depression is a liar, it's deceptive, it distorts reality, it twists reality. How then do you address this? By being in a community of faith committed to God's Word who will then say to you not, hey, just be happy or just be cheerful or whatever, but to remind them of truths because their depressed mind cannot access those truths on its own. Walk with them in real reality because they cannot see reality. Don't try to fix them but try to remind them of what the truth of reality is. I love is. Ephesians 4.25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. We're, we're members of one another. We belong to Christ, but we are connected together by virtue of the fact that we are his body. And so it's this idea of speaking truth and love, which Paul talks about in verse 15 of that same chapter, we always apply speaking the truth and love to someone who's in sin, and going and speaking the truth and love to them, that's one way that, that plays itself out. But, but it's so much more than that. And one of the ways it plays itself out is by being a committed group of people in the local church who is willing to be a safe place for you to unveil what you're struggling with, no matter how bad it looks, and not to immediately jump to, well, you just need to pray more, or immediately jump to, you need to go to a doctor and get medicine. But to walk through and try to identify, maybe you do need to pray. Maybe you do have sin you need to confess. Maybe you do need to take medicine. But maybe you're just struggling right now because you just had a, a major loss in your life and you don't know how to cope with it. And you just need people to say, it's okay. It's okay. We're with you. Yeah. We'll walk through this loss with you. We I can't have, fix it, but we can walk with you. I have struggled with seasonal depression for a long time since I was a kid. And, and, and those of you who know me, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty outgoing, pretty... Uh, uh, extroverted type. Uh, I, I try to keep it pretty easy. I learned from James that, you know, I take what I do very seriously. I just don't take myself too seriously. And I try to live that out. And so, especially the people that I work with who are close to me know when I am down, it's pretty apparent. I'm not my normal self. I'm not looking for them to try and cheer me up. I'm not looking, I don't need medicine. I don't need, uh, there's nothing I need to pray through. What I need them to be is aware so that they don't internalize it and think, well, is he mad at me? Is it something wrong with me? Is he mad at just, me? Just to be aware that, hey, this is just a low part of my life. That's what body life looks like. I won't even drag him out from behind his sofa when he's feeling that Exactly. Way. Yeah, exactly. I have a sofa in there. Yeah. It was a failed attempt at levity. <laughs> <laughs> I guess this is not a subject that no. lends itself much for levity. But understand the heart here, folks, is... This is how we impact the world. This is how we are the light of the world, the city set upon a hill, that we are willing to address 
this issue head on, not with judgment, not with fear, not with with condemnation, but to say, if there is any place in the world where you are allowed to get it wrong, it's in the church. We need to pray and get out of here. Yes. We went went over 20 minutes. It it feels like 10 minutes up here. Uh, I don't know if it felt like it was 10 hours to you. They're like, no, it felt like 20 minutes, James. (laughs) Typically, this form... (laughs) Typically, this format goes by very quickly for yeah. the people as well as for us. We didn't want to do this in a preaching format. No. We really want to do it in more of a conversational. We've tried to do that. So let's pray together, and then we'll be gone. Father, I come to you uh, to thank you for your glorious redemption in our Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, who is ultimately our hope. We look forward to the day when the body is restored to its original condition as you intended it. We know you're moving all things to that place, and we look forward to that. But in the meantime, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your care and your compassion. We thank you for medical technology, and we thank you for the prayers of your people. And we thank you for the privilege of being called into community, real community, not false, not just surface, but real community with one another, where we can walk through the dark days, and we can celebrate the light days. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. This is my testimony.